0: Spart Mystery Podcast. This is episode thirty-nine, Salamis. With Professor Barry Strauss. My conversation with Mr. Strauss was everything I'd hoped it would be: informative, enjoyable, and most of all, a real honour. Before we get to our discussion, there are a few gaps in the narrative that I need to clean up before we move on from where we finished with Professor Cartledge. I had considered releasing a little standalone episode to cover the time between the Hot Gates and Salamis but scrap that idea and decided on a little preamble before the interview proper. Here goes. The Battle of Salamis was one of, if not the, largest naval engagement in the ancient world, but it wasn't the first time Greek and Persian vessels had clashed in 480 BCE. Indeed, we're told that as Leonidas and his allies were contesting the pass, offshore, the Allied navy were fighting the Persians in the strait between mainland Magnesia and the northern tip of Euboea. We call it the Battle of Artemisium, named after the northern Cape of Yabea, which had the same name. It was a narrow passage of water that could be used to strategically nullify the superiority of numbers faced by the Greeks. In much the same way, Leonidas would use the pass against Xerxes and his landbound forces. However, the Greek navy ran the same risk as the army in that they were also exposed to encirclement. Unlike the goat path that led to the Greeks' downfall at Thermopylae, the method was more obvious to the Persian navy. Yabea... Although only separated from the mainland at one point by barely 30 metres or so, it was nonetheless still an island, and as such, could be sailed around. The Greek strategy was simple enough. They needed to hold the pass at Thermopylae, and at the same time the Straits of Artemisium. If the hot gates fell, then the navy had no purpose in staying, and should the fleet be forced to retreat, there would be nothing to stop the Persians landing a force behind the Greeks in the pass. Four days elapsed between the Persians arriving at the pass and the commencement of hostilities there. In constant communication with the army, the navy waited nervously for the opposition navy to appear, but to no avail. The delay was caused by the Persian fleet being struck by a vicious three-day storm off eastern Magnesia. Herodotus suggests that over a third of their ships were sunk during the event, culling the fleet size from 1,200 to now just over 800 vessels. In the narrow, Calmer waters between Euboea and the mainland, the Greek ships survived unscathed. Losses aside, we're still led to believe that the first day of hostilities on the water and land came at the same time. Still vastly outnumbering their counterparts, the Persians immediately rode straight for the 250-odd Greek vessels the moment they came into sight. It's hard to get at the goings-on on that first day in Herodotus' account, but it seems the Greeks formed a convex crescent with their ships, which further negated the Persians' numbers in the strait. Despite being better seamen all round, the ships of Xerxes came off the worse, losing 30 of their number, either captured or sank. We aren't told about Greek losses. Before nightfall, the enemy fleet sent a detachment of around 200 vessels to sail down the east coast of Euboea in an effort to circle around the island and catch the Greek fleet in the rear. Once again, Poseidon had other ideas and another storm wrecked a large portion of this philatilla, midway down the coast of the island, at a place known as the Hollows. On the second day, whilst the Onithus and his troops toiled bravely in the pass, Nothing of note occurred at Artemisium. The Persians, having been beset by two storms, made what repairs they could to their remaining ships. The Greeks, who were too few to sail out and confront their enemy in open water, waited within the relative sanctuary of the strait. According to Herodotus, they did receive a reinforcement squadron of 53 Athenian vessels, who brought with them the news of the Persian disaster at the hollows. These two factors surely buoyed the spirits of the Hellenes. So much so... That they ventured forwards towards the Persians, engaged and destroyed a contingent of Cilician vessels before Helios began his journey into darkness. On the third day, so the historian says, the Persian naval commanders were so embarrassed by their defeats and fearful of Xerxes' wrath that they immediately made preparations to sail into the strait for battle. Unlike the pass of the hot gates, which by this stage had already been turned, the Mede navy had no choice but to confront the Greeks in the narrow passage head-on, where their numbers as before, would mean little. At around midday, the two sides came together in fierce combat with neither gaining the upper hand. In a precursor of things to come, it seems that the sheer size of the Persian navy was ultimately its worst enemy, with ships continuously running afoul of one another. Even so, Greek losses too were heavy, but not as heavy as their opponents. Nightfall brought an end to hostilities once more. Herodotus singles out the Egyptians as having given a particularly good account of themselves, capturing five vessels along with their crews. Understandably, considering the size of their contribution, the Athenians gain the praise of the narrator. One Cleineas, who was serving on his own ship manned by 200 Athenians all paid for by himself, is alone cited as being worthy of mention on the Allied side. Interestingly, Cleineas is the father of Alciviades, a man who will be extremely prominent during the Peloponnesian War before falling foul of his polis' democracy and having to flee to Sparta for succour. But more on him later. After three days of sea warfare, the Greek fleet was in a sorry state, with fully half of the Athenian vessels requiring repairs. Most were for sailing south, but the cunning Themistocles believed there still lay a path open to victory. Before we could get too far down that road, word came through that Thermopylae had fallen, and Leonidas's head was already mounted on a stake. Without further ado... The Allied fleet collectively decided to sail south to friendlier waters and effect what repairs they could. What happened next has always struck me as nothing short of miraculous. There appears to barely have been two weeks between the actions aforementioned and the Battle of Salamis. Somehow during that short period of time the commanders of the Allied fleet managed to get their vessel seaworthy again and as if that wasn't time consuming enough the fleet also helped evacuate nearly the entire Athenia population. It's likely that, at least in a partial sense, an evacuation had been underway for some time. Nonetheless, by far the bulk of the city's citizenry departed once it was clear Xerxes' next stop was their doorstep. There were still a few who, whether from zealotry or sheer obstinance, decided to barricade themselves on the Acropolis and await the Mede, but for the rest, it was retreat. For those who chose Exodus, it was to be a long sojourn, with return impossible until after the Battle of Petya and the expulsion of Persian forces from Hellas nearly a year later. Many went to treason, a prong of land jutting into the western side of the Saronic Gulf, south of Corinth. Others went to the islands of Aegina and Salamis, where they would have front row seats to what was to come next. Herodotus gives stark little information about how they were all sheltered and fed, and nor are we giving numbers for this temporary diaspora. The Persians had a few stops to make on their way down to Attica. They sacked and razed the cities of the Plataeans, Phocians, and Thespians, rewarding the populaces for their disloyalty in siding with the Hellenic League. When they came across Athens, they found her desolate of people, save for the holdouts who'd taken refuge on the high city, and they were easily taken care of. Xerxes then ordered it all burnt to the ground, visiting his father's revenge on the city, if not the people, who had escaped punishment ten years prior at Marathon. In the archaeological record, there is a layer of destruction across the Acropolis and other parts of the city that is a remnant of the raising that took place at this time. The city's temples were toppled, and their statues were either smashed or carried off. Buildings and houses were torn down and engulfed in flames. This layer of destruction has made it exceedingly easy to date objects as pre- or post-480 BCE. For the Allied Greeks, though, and particularly the Athenians, who manned the fleet anchored on the shores of Salamis, the Havoc was merely a harbinger of things to come. Both fleets had been tested at Artemisium and the argument could indeed be made for the Persians having been found wanting on that occasion. This time, however, there was nowhere left for the Greek fleets to go. If they lost here, then the loss of Athens would likely have become permanent, and all the glory that was Athenian culture during the 5th century may have been lost. The stakes had never been higher for the Hellenic League. I feel we have enough context of what occurred between the battles of Thermopylae, Artemisium and Salamis now. From here, I let Barry Strauss take up the narrative for the engagement a professor at Cornell University, and an accomplished author on Greek and Roman history. If you haven't read any of his works, I highly recommend you take the time. He mixes in a tiny bit of believable fiction to colour his well-researched and carefully considered historical retellings. It has a way of making distant periods not only believable in the mind's eye, but incredibly accessible too. In any event, I give you our discussion on the Battle of Salamis. Hope you will enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, and Laconophiles all, it's my great honor to welcome you back to another episode of the Spartan History Podcast. Our topic for the show today is the Battle of Salamis, 480 BCE, and with me to discuss it is the one and only Professor Barry Strauss. Good day to you, sir. Good
1: day. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here, Steve.
0: It is a, it is a real honor, a real honor. Right. So the campaigning season of 480 had been an incredibly rough one, rough one for the nascent and fractious Hellenic League. In April, Xerxes had crossed into Europe accompanied by a force of men and ships with the goal of subjugating, the obstreperous Hellenes. By September, practically all of central and northern Greece had madized. The alliance against Xerxes had lost at Thermopylae, been forced to retreat at Artemisium after a draw, and had seen one of the crown jewels of Greek exceptionalism, Athens, turn into a smoking ruin. Off the coast of southwestern Attica, perhaps not entirely out of view of the smouldering Acropolis, lie the island of Salamis. It would be here in the narrow strait between Salamis and the mainland, that, as the subtitle of your book declares, the naval encounter that saved Greece and Western civilization occurred. Let's start with a central object of that conflict, the trireme. The Delphic oracle gave the Athenians an utterance in the years before the war that, though all else shall be taken, Zeus the all-seeing father grants that the wooden wall only shall not fail. And this was interpreted by Themistocles, whom we'll come to as meaning a wooden wall of ships, Not overstating their importance at all, you write that the ships at Salamis were the most important wooden structures in Greece since the Trojan War. What was a trireme, Professor?
1: Hmm. Uh, Great introduction, by the way. So (laughs) a a trireme was a a galley. It was a warship, and um, it had uh, oars and sails. Um, The sails could be used for getting the ships from place to place, but in battle, they took... uh, both the sails down and the masts as well to lighten uh, the load of the ship and the ship was powered by oarsmen Uh, we know a fair amount about Athenian triremes as they were around the year 400 uh, and so we have to extrapolate back and assume that they were similar around the time of the battle of Salamis in 480 Um, in the later period the trireme had about a crew of 200 of whom 170 were rowers. Uh, there was a small number of Marines uh, and archers and, and then there was a, uh, a, a, navigate, a navigation crew uh, and um, really important bo'sun and assistant uh, to uh, keep time and uh, the helmsman who worked the rudder. Uh, but the heart of the ship was the 170 rowers who were arranged on three levels. And uh, their job was to maneuver the ship in concert with other ships. Triremes rarely fought alone. Uh, to um, attack the enemy generally by ramming. Um, the uh, the trireme was, uh, in a way, a guided missile. And the Athenian strategy was to uh, win battles, uh, not by using the trireme as a fighting platform, not by using it as a way... To come up near the enemy ship and then to board the enemy ship, but rather to ram the enemy ship uh, and then to withdraw. So uh, to do that required a lot of training, a lot of skill, uh, a lot of maneuverability, uh, a lot of seamanship and and great knowledge of the the winds and the waters. Uh, All of that would have to come together in making a trireme fleet work.
0: Interesting. Now, I guess the, the Athenians and the, the allied Greeks weren't the only ones sporting triremes during the Greco-Persian Wars. The, the opposition, the Persian side had them too. Were there any yeah. fundamental differences between the Persian and, well, I guess, you know, the, the allied Persian triremes and the Greek ones?
1: Yeah. So um, uh, the Persian Navy was a coalition of different ethnicities and nationalities. Um, there were uh, Egyptians. Uh, there were uh, Lydians uh, from the southwest coast of Anatolia. Um, uh, there were Greeks, lots of Greeks from the Aegean, uh, uh, the, the Aegean coast of Anatolia and from the islands. Um, and finally, uh, there were Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians were probably uh, the most skilled and most important rowers in the um uh, in, in the Persian fleet, Phoenician triremes were a little bit different than uh, Greek triremes. Uh, they um, they had bulwarks, which the Greek triremes uh, did not, uh, and they had a larger contingent of marines and archers, uh, thirty to forty men rather than uh, only about uh, a dozen. Uh, in that sense, they were they were heavier than the the Greek ships. Although the Greek ships, it seems. Um, were heavier in terms of um, uh, of the wood that was used to to make them. Uh, so uh, the Persian ships uh, also would engage in ramming, but they were much more willing to engage in boarding uh, than the Greek ships were, in particular the Phoenician ones.
0: Interesting. I sort of I get the sense just just from reading your work and and the sources that you know, as, as you suggest, the the primary tactic of a um, of a Hellenic. Trireme fleet was to yeah, ram, hold the other ship, yeah. and and backwater to to get away. Uh, yes, interesting. In the in the Carthaginian wars, the Romans you know developed their own sort of navy during that time, and they developed the the corvus, a uh, sort of a deck right. with a spike on it that could you know turn right. out sea battle right. into a right. land battle. This was yeah. not the intention for the Greeks at all. To, to, to not at all. A,
1: okay. No, well, certainly not at the time of Salamis, and not for most of the fifth century. Um, after uh, the Greco-Persian Wars, um, after Xerxes' invasion, for a period in uh, around uh, the 460s, uh, the Athenians switched over to uh, a trium that had carried more marines. Um, and they were more willing to ter- fight a land battle at sea, the way the Romans had, although without the corvus, without the without the spike, and the bridge. Uh, and the reason for this was political. Uh, and sociocultural. The navy gave power to the poorest men in Athenian society because the rowers were drawn from the the lower classes, from the poorest people. And the um, middle and upper classes that had dominated Athens before the Persian Wars, they weren't happy about this. Um, They wanted to restore their primacy. And their primacy depended in large part on the fact that they alone had the resources to become infantrymen. They needed armor, which was expensive, and they needed a leisure time to train. And so, for a time, uh, under um, a uh, a regime that was more conservative than that of the Radical Democracy, the Athenians used. Uh, Athenians fought battles with more Marines. So quite different than what they had done during Salamis. This is just a temporary thing. The Athenians have to back away from this, first of all, because the casualty rate is too high. And secondly, because there is a political revolution in Athens uh, and the, uh, what we call the radical Democrats, the, Uh, If you prefer, the true Democrats took power uh, and they went back to the way things had been at Salamis, which is uh, a navy uh, that depends on ramming and whose backbone is the poorest people in Athenian society.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Now, let's look look at the um, forces that were arrayed at the battle. mm -hmm. How many ships initially accompanied Xerxes on his conquest and how many were left by the time of Salamis?
1: Well, it's a um, good question. It's, kind of, it's controversial. Herodotus, as an author, tends to exaggerate. He certainly greatly exaggerates the number of um, infantrymen, the number of land soldiers uh, and cavalry that the Persians had. He says that the Persians had 1,207 ships when they started. And he also says that the Persians invited the Greeks to see how many ships they had. Um, They wanted to uh, spook them with the size of their uh, navy. And then they gathered more ships on the way from their allies on the Greek mainland so that at their height, they had, I believe the number is 1,327 ships. Now, some scholars are not without reason skeptical about these numbers, and they point out in particular that the 1,200 number is suspiciously like the number of ships that are supposed to have fought in the Trojan War. In any case, however many ships the Persians had, they were cut. their fleet was cut down to size by a series of storms. And the Aegean can be very stormy in the summer. Persians don't seem to have really known what they were doing. Uh, they didn't know what they were in for. And by the time of the Battle of Salamis, uh, the size of the Persian fleet is somewhere between 600 and 800 uh, triremes. I estimated 650 in my book. The Greek navy is somewhat under 400 ships. Um, I think that Herodotus at one point says 378, but then he gives a breakdown that adds up to 371. <laughs> a couple of ships didn't make it, so I estimate they had 368 uh, triremes uh, at um, at Salamis. The The Greeks did. So the Persians outnumber the Greeks almost by 2 to 1 in terms of warships.
0: Interesting. So on the on the Greek side, I guess it was a conglomerate force. Who were the main contributors of the ships there?
1: Well, the largest contingent came from Athens. The Athenians contributed 180 ships to fight at Salamis. Uh, the second largest was the uh, Corinthians. Uh, golly, I don't remember if they had 60 or 40 ships. And then the third largest was the island of uh, Aegina, uh, uh, In the uh, Saronic Gulf. Uh, The Spartans, I believe, came after that. And um, after that, the numbers become uh, increasingly smaller until you get the the city of Croton uh, in southern Italy. They sent one ship. They were the only, uh, there's a large number of Greek colonies in southern Italy and Sicily, and only one of them sent the ship to fight at Salamis.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, by by 480, the idea of an Athenian navy was a a relatively new concept. You know, at at Marathon, barely 10 years prior, the citizens were being lauded for a stunning hoplite victory. In the aftermath of that battle, you know, and fearing a Persian naval assault on the city, the troops had to force march back to defend it from such. Had they an armada like the one deployed at Salamis, the dreaded Mede may never have had the opportunity to even land a force, Could you walk us through the events that led to the transformation of Athens from a barely second-rate maritime power to the preeminent maritime power of the land and tie that in with their architect, Themistocles?
1: Sure. So um, the one thing we need to know is a most important piece of background is that in the year 508, Athens had a revolution. Uh, And the revolution installed a democracy. It was one of the first democracies in history, probably not the first uh, in in Greece. The Greeks invented democracy, but one of the very first and quickly became the most important and the most successful. And one of the things that democracy encouraged was innovation and out-of-the-box thinking. And Themistocles was as innovative uh, as they come, Uh, He was not from the charm circle of the aristocracy. I think that one of his parents was an aristocrat and the other wasn't. Uh, He prided himself on being rough and ready and having brutal uh, tactics as necessary. He was very ambitious. Uh, He fought at Marathon and he supposedly uh, regretted the fact that uh, it was Miltiades and not him who won the main glory for the battle, and Themistocles was looking for a way to get ahead. He was a brilliant strategist. Uh, The historian Thucydides commends Themistocles for uh, outstripping all other people that he knew in the ability to uh, foresee the future and to think on his feet. And Themistocles understood that in spite of the Athenian victory at Marathon, the war wasn't over and that the Persians would be coming back. And this time they'd be coming back with an enormous fleet and that the only hope that Athens had was to build a navy uh, that could be used to stand up to the Persians. He might not have gotten anywhere except for the fact that Athens had silver mines. And in the year 483, uh, the Athenians struck uh, a mother load of silver. And there was a debate in the assembly as to what to do with this money. Some of the politicians wanted to uh, distribute the money to all of the citizens to make it a gigantic welfare payment or tax rebate, if you will. Domestically said, we can't afford that. The Persians are coming back and we need to use the money to build a navy. And he won the argument. Uh, as I suggested earlier, it's even more complicated than that because the traditional ruling class in Athens um, uh, depended uh, on its power as the infantry, uh, and and its political base was the infantrymen. They could see that the navy would turn political power over to poorer people in society, and they were very worried about that. But nonetheless, Themistocles won, and so the Athenians began building this navy, and they completed it in the nick of time, in time for the Persian invasion. The other part of Themistocles' strategy, he had several. He was a I agree with Thucydides, Themistocles was an immensely farsighted statesman. He understood that uh, the Greeks could never match the number of ships that the Persians had, and they probably uh, wouldn't be as good seamen as the Persians were, because the Persians had navies that were more experienced. So the one thing the Greeks didn't want to do was to fight the Persians on the open sea, where they could deploy their numbers, uh, and they could run circles around the Athenians. The ideal place to fight was in a narrow strait, and there are a number of narrow straits in Greece, but near the city of Athens, uh, and, and in Greece more generally, near the city of Athens, and in many ways in Greece more generally, the ideal place to fight was the Salamis Straits. It was just the right size. Furthermore, the Athenians knew the winds and the waters in this area, as their enemy would not. But there's another uh, part to Themistocles' strategy, and that is he had to convince the Athenians to evacuate. He knew that it was impossible to to defend uh, the Athenian homeland. And he would run into two problems with this strategy. Problem one, or really three problems. So problem one is, again, the hoplites, the infantrymen. They wanted to fight a land battle. They didn't want to fight a sea battle. So Themistocles had to convince them to take the political risk of turning the future of the state over to the poor where they looked down on. Problem two, some people thought it was utterly hopeless and that the only thing the Athenians could do was to leave, to evacuate their home, become refugees, and to go to southern Italy where they had a foothold uh, in a place called Siris, uh, and to reestablish the polis of Athens there. Very radical thing. Problem three is, and related to problem two, is that people in ancient times were very conservative. They didn't want to leave their homes. They didn't want to leave their lands. They had a religion that depended on locale and the gods of their streams and their hills and their trees and their um, their fields. Uh, very, very hard to convince people to leave. So Themistocles had to fight a lot of opposition and he knew that if he did a head-on approach, it wouldn't work. Um, he had to be cunning and he had to cheat. Fortunately, he was well up to this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we'll certainly get to that. Yeah, I mean, yes. Themistocles' story is just so incredibly preponderant in the sources and, and even in your own work. You know, you paint this picture of a man of, of sheer and utter dynamism. I thought at one yes. moment there you were going to label him as Polythropos, a modern-day Odysseus. Yes, but, um, yes it's,
1: indeed.
0: It's easy to he forget. He a
1: modern-day Odysseus.
0: Yeah, well, I thought, I, thought we were, I thought you were going to go there for one moment. I thought, oh, that's, yeah. that's where Barry's going here. And it would have made perfect sense. Um, it's sort of easy to forget that, that Themistocles wasn't in overall command of the Allied forces at Salamis, and that no, honour fell to a, a Spartan, Eurybiades. What do yes. we know about him, and, and how ceremonial was his position?
1: Well, we don't know much about Eurybiades personally. We certainly know a fair amount about the Spartan ruling elite, Um, And um, they, in their own way, were every bit as cunning as Themistocles. Uh, Sparta was a society that encouraged people to um, be cunning. They might not have had uh, book learning, but they had street smarts um, in excess. Uh, The Spartans were not a naval people. They tended (laughs) to be, uh, to put it mildly, they were the great land fighters of ancient Greece. Uh, they didn't trust the sea. Uh, they uh, had so much prestige as the greatest fighters in Greece that they had to have the, um, th- they had to be in overall command of the expedition. But they were really, really limited in what they could do. And uh, they felt it was hopeless to fight the Persians at sea. Once the Persians, especially once the Persians invaded Attica and they burned and temples of Athens, and they sacked Athens. Um, the Spartans felt the Athenians don't have a polis anymore. We do. They had been building a wall across the Isthmus of Corinth to block off the Peloponnesus, and they felt better to move the fleet to the Peloponnesus, off the coast of the Peloponnesus, and trust to the wall to stop the Persians from being able to break into our territory. So they were very skeptical about fighting its uh, at Salamis altogether.
0: Mm, mm. So uh, let's move on to the battle, or or rather past it briefly, if we could. It's it's no secret that the Greeks were victorious. You know, that's abundantly clear to anyone even remotely familiar with the Greco-Persian Wars. But the truly interesting thing is how, considering the odds that they achieved victory. Now, in your book, you cite three facets that ultimately gave the Hellenes the edge, geography, shock, and command. And I think if we develop those three topics, the listeners will be able to see how truly extraordinary Salamis was. Firstly, and you've touched on it briefly already, but I'll get you to expound on it. Geography. In what ways did the setting lend itself to Hellenic advantage?
1: Well, Themistocles knew, uh, as, as any Greek commander would know, that if the Greeks had to fight a naval battle, the best place for them to fight it was in the Narrows. Uh, in a narrow strait where the Persians could not deploy their superiority in numbers, and the Salamis Strait uh, was um, was exactly such a place. It was ideal. Uh, the other things that I had going for it is it had a friendly shore. Ancient navies wanted to fight where there's a friendly shore behind them. In the uh, island of Salamis, there were no Persians there. Uh, the Athenians had that. And the Athenians knew about the winds that blew up in the Salamis Strait every day. And they knew that their ships would be at an advantage, both because they were forewarned, they knew what they were expecting, and because their ships were lower, uh, had a lower center of gravity than the Persian ships. And so the wind that blew up would not uh, put them off balance as much as it would put the Persian ships off balance. So this is the place to fight. Themistocles' problem was that he had to convince both the Greeks and the Persians to fight there.
0: <laughs> well, I guess, you know, given your uh, <coughs> description of the topography there, it's, um, it almost beggars belief that Xerxes would uh, would go into the strait to, to fight. Right. And you, you know, you so elegantly lay out for your readers that they just simply weren't expecting any resistance at the straits. Could you bring right. in the story of Sicinus and the deception of
1: Themistocles? Sure. So Themistocles knew that the Persians had a very sophisticated way of war and that they preferred to suborn a traitor and uh, giving them uh, a force multiplier rather than fighting head on. This is the Persians' preferred way of fighting. And so Themistocles thought, I'll give them a traitor. I will send them a message saying that I am willing to turn traitor. I'll send them a message that will be credible because it's in part true. I will tell them that the Greek navy has decided to evacuate Salamis. In fact, they had. Much against Themistocles' will, the other Greeks had decided to leave Salamis and go to the Peloponnesus and make their last stand there. And they were planning to pull out the very next day. So that evening, Themistocles sends his trusted slave, a Greek named Sicinus, he sends him in a small boat across the straits to the mainland to Phaleron Bay where Xerxes was waiting with uh, with his ships uh, and his high command and to give him the message. My master Themistocles says that the Greeks are planning to flee in the morning. He is ready to turn the Athenian navy over to you. He's ready to turn traitor. All you have to do is go into the straits and block the Greeks from being able to leave. Now, um, Xerxes has a war council, and as Herodotus tells the story, uh, the two main players are, uh, first, his um, his kinsman, Mardonius, uh, and second, uh, by far the most remarkable uh, player in this whole drama, uh, the first uh, female admiral that we know of in history, Artemisia who is the uh, the queen of Halicarnassus, nowadays Bodrum, Turkey, so in southwestern Anatolia, the city which, as it happens, Herodotus came from. Hmm. She's half Greek and half Carian. They are a native people of this area. And uh, the story goes that she told Xerxes, don't fall for it. I know these Greeks. It's a trick. <laughs> but Mardonius convinces uh, Xerxes that this is a, uh, you know... Uh, the opportunity of a lifetime after all a traitor had saved the Persians at Thermopylae and uh, earlier it was a traitor who had um, led the Persians to victory at the naval battle of Lade off Miletus in 494 and so Xerxes is convinced that once again the Greeks have a traitor now uh, just sidebar Uh, Later on, it turns out that Themistocles does turn traitor to the Persians. This is much later, and um, he is given reason to um, abandon his homeland, shall we say. There are some of my colleagues who've suggested that, you know what? Maybe Themistocles had a plan B, which was if the Greeks managed to escape from Salamis, maybe he would turn traitor and go over to the Persians. Maybe he felt that Athens future it would have a better future on the side of the Persians than on the side of the Greeks no ancient source says that it's speculation but with a man like Themistocles you can't rule it out a hundred percent anyhow Xerxes was convinced that this was a credible story and so he launches his fleet uh to uh sail into sail and row into the Salamis Straits uh at, at night
0: mm, yeah like you say there's you know. It seems strange that Xerxes could be so easily filled, but there was precedent. You know, as you mentioned Thermopylae. I believe there was an yeah. incident at Cyprus as well where uh, yes. the trader yeah, yes. turned it to the yeah. Persian side. So. Yeah. Lastly, command. How did yes. the differing command structures between the forces play into the engagement?
1: Well, the, um, the Persian Navy was not, if you'll pardon me, a tight ship. um the persian navy was made up of these different national contingents and uh, they saw their main job as uh, getting their tickets punched to show that they were loyal to the great king their main value was that they had shown up they were there and they would go into battle but the overall structure was was quite weak they were not um they did not have uh, the kind of unified command structure and, and discipline command structure that the, uh, that the Greeks had. Another thing to point out is that their ships were commanded by Persians, but there were no Persian seamen. There were no Persian rowers or helmsmen or navigators. Uh, and the reason for this is that the Persians were uh, landlubbers par excellence. Uh, not only were they not comfortable on salt water, they thought salt water was demonic. Um, And so it's very paradoxical that you should have these people commanding these ships who really don't know very much about naval battle at all and don't think highly of it. Uh, It's not a it's not a good situation. Um, The Persian Navy is slowly making its way into the Salamis Straits at night and the next morning. um, And uh, the result is chaos utter chaos they needed a traffic cop and they really didn't have one uh, <laughs> to be organizing the whole thing whereas the greeks for all of their squabbling and infighting and disagreement were able to pull together as uh as a disciplined force
0: indeed <clears throat> i mean Unlike at Thermopylae, where Leonidas was in the front lines with the troops, and I'm imagining Themistocles was somewhere on a trireme in the straits there, mm-hmm. I don't imagine Xerxes was dipping his slippered foot into the water in any Where was the, the great Persian king during the battle?
1: The Persian king was on land. He was sitting on the slopes of Mount Aegelion on the mainland, on the mainland of Attica, so west uh, of the city of Athens. And he was on a throne. And from this throne, he was looking down on the battle. And there were runners who were on the shore who'd run up the side of the hill um, and give the news to Xerxes. Or perhaps it was a relay uh, that would bring the news of the battle up to uh, Xerxes. And of course, uh, A, he couldn't see all that clearly because this is a world without binoculars, uh, without high-level optics. So it was all depending on eyesight and rumor or word that was relayed to him. And B, what he did see, did not make him happy because his his men were losing
0: hmm. yeah well it would be yeah one thing to have your you know leader shoulder to shoulder with you in a in combat and another to have him you know gazing at you from afar with a propensity for decapitation so i can imagine yes. there's you know different sorts of uh, moral components in the battle as well thanks for elucidating on those three topics um i find them incredibly instructive, considering that Herodotus' account of the battle is rather fragmented, and possibly (laughs) that's because he wrote it some 50 years after. But what the historian does provide is some delightful embroidery for the engagement. So let's embroider our own narrative just a little now too. We're told that the battle commenced at first light on the 27th of September, but rather than see, the Persians first heard the Greeks singing a paean. How did the opening phase pan out, and who drew first blood?
1: Hmm. uh here I have to say it's been a while since I wrote that book. <laughs> <laughs> um I think you know the 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 Greeks disagreed as to who drew first blood but I think it was uh a ship from uh Aegina that drew first blood if I remember correctly um but I may be wrong it's been a while you well' go the, and hold you do okay the important thing is that the Athenians uh, were on the left wing, opposite the Phoenicians, who were the best uh, uh, ships in uh, and the best sailors in the in the Persian navy, um, and that the Athenians were able to uh, the Athenians were able to attack them and to defeat them. Now the Athenians um, were in no hurry to start the battle because they were waiting for the this particular wind to blow up the the Aura, or as they say in modern Greek, the Avra. Um, and this was a sea breeze. Uh, it was not a particularly strong breeze, but it was strong enough um, that it would be upsetting to those who didn't expect it, and particularly to the Persians, because their ships were higher, um, and they caught the breeze, and it unsettled their ships. Uh, it made it uh, more difficult for them to be rowed. Um, uh, rowing boats are... um exceptionally unstable Uh, and they're at the mercy of of the winds and of the waves and you want them to be as as, um, unmoving a platform as possible. Uh, That's why the marines on these ships would be sitting in battle uh, rather than standing because that could unbalance the boat. You want the boats to be balanced and what this wind did was it unbalanced the Persian ships. That gave the Greeks an advantage Over the enemy because their boats were lower, uh, closer to the water, um, and because they knew the wind was coming. So um, that added to their advantage. I mean, the other advantage, uh, some other advantages they had. First of all, um, surprise. The Persians hadn't expected the Greeks to be ready to fight a battle, they weren't ready for it. And secondly, rest. Uh, The Greeks had spent the night on land getting ready. Uh, the Persians had spent a night at sea, and the only way to keep their ships from um, getting afoul of each other was that you had to have um, uh, relays of people on these boats uh, rowing over and over and over again to keep the ships be, ships in order. By the time the morning came, um, they were not rested. A Some of them might have been dizzy uh, from being on the water overnight. Yes, it's relatively gentle in the Salamis Straits, probably on a September night. Uh, but it can't compare to being on land. Uh, so uh, the Greeks had uh, f- had shock as a force multiplier, surprise uh, as an advantage uh, against the enemy.
0: Hmm, interesting. Now, you've already mentioned Queen Artemisia and you know, hailing yes. from the same region as the narrator of the histories. Yes. Um, you can imagine yes. she got some pretty special attention, but her subjugation during, sorry, her um, subterfuge during the battle um, is on a Themistoclan level. What were her it actions is. during the combat?
1: So um the um, the Greeks put a price on her head. Uh, one of the reasons I think why the Persians had the first female admiral was that they it was propaganda. It was an insult to the Greeks. And what they were saying is, we think so little of you that we think a woman can beat you. We have no problem sending a woman into battle uh, because we think she can uh, defeat you. Uh, And so the Greeks put a price on her head. Now, uh, a Greek captain sees her flagship and he heads straight at her to ram her. She sees it coming and she decides, uh, according to Herodotus, uh, that the only way to protect herself is to convince the Greeks that she's not really Artemisia. And the way to do that is to ram a friendly, uh, to ram uh, another ship uh, in the Persian fleet. And the ship she chooses is commanded by someone who has insulted her before, who has besmirched her honor, a man named Damasithemus. And so uh, uh, Artemisia, resourceful as Themistocles, as you said, turns and rams Damasithemus' ship and destroys it. And the Athenian captain who is heading towards her decides, well, you know what? I guess it's not really Artemisia, after all, I was mistaken. It's clearly one of ours, so I'll let it go. (laughs) Xerxes' men really worried about what their uh, king is going to do, because he's so angry, and he does punish people. He has them beheaded, as you said, uh, for losing the battle. They send up the news to him, but they uh, slightly change it. They say, look, sire, Artemisia has sunk an enemy ship. From his perch far above the battle, he can't tell whose ship that she has sunk. And Herodotus says um, he gives Xerxes the immortal line: "Woe is me! My uh, men have my men have become women, and my women have become men." Not something that would pass woke muster nowadays, but um, <laughs> it worked. It worked at the time.
0: Okay, Must have been incredibly uh effective in in sinking the other ship in that none of the survivors yes. made it to shore to, to yes.
1: change yes. the story yeah. there. Yes, I find that a little hard to believe, although we do know that the Greeks uh were literally beating um uh Persians in the in the water. Uh they're you know they were taking oars um, and you know broken oars and wood and they were beating them uh and killing them that way um I, even if we imagine though that some men made it off the ship um, they might not have been credible i mean the story is not very credible so <laughs> artemisia just had to deny it saying what are you talking about i would never do something like that <laughs>
0: <laughs> hell hath no fury uh, right, hell no yeah. fury. yeah now i read i read somewhere I, I forget where if it was in herodotus or plutarch that that The possibility for ultimate greek victory had to do with the fact that the greeks could swim and the persians couldn't did you put any stock in that theory
1: yes uh the greeks could swim the persians could not swim and some of the persian officers who die there's some very high-ranking persians who die um can't swim but i think that remember some of these triremes are greek are, are manned by greeks and some of them manned by Phoenicians and Lydians and, I think, in Carians, and they could swim. Um, those people could swim. And Egyptians, they, they they probably all could swim, but the Persian officers could not swim. Um, maybe some of the others couldn't swim as well, <clears throat> but the Greeks certainly could, and that was an advantage for
0: them. Hmm. The famous Athenian tragedian Aeschylus uh, yes. was apparently on board a trireme during yes. the engagement at Marathon and at Plataea as well, so it said. And in four seventy two, he released his tragedy, labeled the Persians. How yes. does how does the Persians help us get informed about what happened on that day?
1: Um, it's it's useful. It tells us the pan that the Greeks uh, that the Greeks sang. Um, it tells us about what happened on the island of Sitalia, which is an islet. Um, in the uh, opening of the Strait between Salamis and the mainland, uh, the Persians had stationed uh, a group of infantrymen on this island because they thought their Navy would defeat the Greeks easily. and that the Greeks would seek um, their, you know, they'd swim from their ships and would come to this island and seek shelter there, uh, and that the Persian infantrymen would then be able to kill them. Just the opposite happened. It's the Persians who lose the battle and the Greeks are able with ease to land a contingent of hoplites on the island and slaughter all the Persians. Aeschylus makes a big deal about this in his, uh, in his play. And that's partly because Aeschylus really identifies with the hoplite class in Athens. He's not a fan of radical democracy. And it tells us how uh, politically how the hoplites played the battle. Uh, they said yeah we won and thankfully it's the hoplites the Athenian hoplites who, who won the day uh in fact they were uh, made only a small contribution to victory so uh the play lets us see let's just see some of that uh and it gives us some idea of uh how the Greeks saw the Persians and also the variety of the um of the peoples in the Persian Empire he's very plays is very big on uh on narrating, um, um, listing all the different peoples in the Persian Empire.
0: Mm, it seems to be a, a function of, of Greek tragedy that, that no living Greek can be directly mentioned within the play itself. So I guess it was, right. you know, quite uh, tricky of Aeschylus to set it in Persepolis and in Persian territory.
1: Yes. You know that uh, uh, not long before this, a play, a tragedy by a man named Phrynichus about the uh the fall of Miletus the city of Miletus uh rebelled against the Persians in the 490s and after the battle of Lade it falls to the Persians the Persians sack the place and kill and and enslave and deport the survivors um and the Athenians uh were so horrified by seeing this on stage that they find the playwright so Aeschylus uh knew better than to uh than to do that. So, as you say, mm-hmm. it was wise of him to set to play in, in in Persia.
0: Indeed. Now, uh, nobody's going to mark you on this one, but we perhaps should bring the, the battle to a close in as broad yes. a strokes as possible. Can you just give us a, a very brief outline of, of, you know, how it progressed and how it ultimately finished?
1: So in, in the battle. Yeah. The battle itself. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the battle goes on all day and, uh, the, uh, the Persians have very little to show for it. As I said, the Athenians uh, early on defeat the uh, most uh, effective contingent in the Persian Navy, the uh, Phoenicians. Uh, the Aegeanitians do very well also in the battle, the second largest navy. Uh, although the Corinthians uh, took some heat for not doing well in the battle, uh, they are also important. Uh, The Greeks in general do quite well in fighting against the Persians. Um, The Persians have this problem of a traffic jam. Uh, Their contingents that that are losing turn and want to flee from the Salamis Straits. But meanwhile, the contingents of the Persian navy that haven't made it into the Straits yet are trying to get into the Salamis streets uh, because they they don't dare let uh, Xerxes think that they haven't uh, pulled their oar, as it were. Um, so they need to be there. Uh, and so there's just this huge traffic jam, there's a clot, uh, and that uh, adds to the casualties among the Persians. Uh, the Greek fleet keeps its order and fights with discipline. Uh, the uh, Persian navy uh, uh descends into what uh, Herodotus calls a thoroughbose. And that's something like a chaos, uh, a mess. Um, I think that is really fundamental to the outcome, uh, that they lose their good order or the Greeks keep their good order. Uh, It's a total victory for the Greeks. Herodotus doesn't give us any uh, any statistics. A later source claims that the Persians lost 200 triremes and the Greeks lost only 40 triremes. We're not Mm. sure if that's true, but that's surely the right order of things. So, you know, a major defeat for the Persians and a a major victory for the Greeks.
0: Fantastic. Now, in the immediate aftermath, uh, considering such a stunning victory, what were the the Greeks' next moves?
1: Well, the Greeks' next move... uh, was uh first of all just to wait and see what was going to happen and uh what happened was that within a few days xerxes fled he left uh, uh on ship he left um he left attica um and headed back to uh the uh, mainland of southwest asia he was after all the head of state the head of government the king of kings it was just too risky for him to be there without uh, the assurance that the navy could get him out of there when necessary. The Persian navy was now at risk of being of being destroyed by the Greeks. Uh, and so they left. The Greeks gave the Persians the space to do this. It was to their advantage to see the Persians leave. And at that point, um, there wasn't much the Greeks could do. Athens was in ruins. The Persians occupied it. The Athenians couldn't go home. Some of them were on Salamis, some of them were scattered elsewhere around uh, the uh, Saronic Gulf in places like Troizen, for instance, um, which uh, was closely allied to Athens. And they waited. They waited over the winter. Um, The the Persians left a large force, a large land army in Greece under um, Xerxes' kinsman uh, Mardonius. And as you know... uh, the war is decided the following spring. Now, the Greeks do organize an expedition to cross the Aegean uh, and to attack the Persians on the other side of the Aegean on uh the mainland of um uh of of Anatolia, which they do. At the same time, around the same time in the spring of 479, uh the Greek and that expedition is commanded by the Athenians. Uh around the same time in the spring of 479, uh, the um, Uh, Greek land army commanded by the Spartans fights a land battle against the Persians at Plataea, uh, which is located in Boeotia, just over the mountains north of Athens. Uh, And this is a tremendous victory, a heroic victory on the part of the Spartans who are able to defeat the Persians, even though the Persians utterly outclass the Greeks when it comes to cavalry. Uh, But the Spartans, uh, are able to defeat them, and this is a real tribute to uh, the Spartan infantry. Um, <clears throat> so it's this one-two punch that wins the day for the Greece for the Greeks. Excuse me, it wins the day for the Greeks and um, finally drives the Persian invaders uh, out of Greece altogether. And it allows the Greeks now to turn around to put the shoe on the other foot. Uh, and to bring the war back to the Persians uh, on the mainland of uh, of Asia and to liberate the islands uh, of the Aegean and to begin to liberate the coastal cities, the Greek cities, uh, from Persian rule. And they succeed in driving the Persians back uh, from the coast further inland uh, where they last for a long time.
0: Indeed, indeed. Um... I think the the way you put it, there a one two punch. I I really like that idea, and I've always sort of promoted that throughout the show. That um, through reasons more of their own undertaking, the Spartans, you know, over a couple of centuries, developed a, a land based power structure within the Peloponnesian right. Pen- peninsula that gave them the ability, come the Greco Persian Wars, to be able to contend with. Uh, the greatest army that had ever set foot on on Grecian soil. And on the other right. hand, the Athenians, through the evolution of democracy, the silver mines, Themistocles yeah. had the navy that could combat the other facet of yes. the Persian invasion. It's just, it's yes. utterly amazing.
1: It is. Think, and, you know, I was no, just go going to say, it's, it's a remarkable example of an alliance that works. Mm. It's temporary, of course, but when it works, it works awfully well.
0: And and more or less completely inverts come the uh, Peloponnesian War there. Um, Last question for you. um, And it's more around the sources. Um, Obviously, we had Herodotus and Thucydides, Aeschylus, Plutarch. But um, in Troisen in the 1950s, uh, I think it was a coffee shop owner found a a large marble slab that he used as a a door uh, plinth for for a little while before donating it to a museum. And it's come down to us as the Themistocles decree. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how it can affect our view of the sources?
1: Yes, the Themistocles Decree was an Athenian decree uh, from uh, quite a bit later, I think around 300 BC, if not even later BCE. Um, And uh, what it does, what it purports to be is a a memorial of the uh, mobilization of. Order in Athens, how to mobilize the Athenians by tribes for the um, for the naval mobilization against the Persians, and to prepare to evacuate Attica. Um, it's pretty clear from the studies that have been done of it that it, you know, it's not the original language, or the original language has been um, uh, changed, made more in the vernacular and more in the language of this later period. Scholars uh, disagree, as we scholars always do, but I think there—most of us think—that this does date back to an original uh, document, uh, and so it gives us some insight as to how the democracy prepared for uh, the challenge of, of of fighting the Persians. So it's it's really quite remarkable.
0: Hmm. And to your knowledge, does it in any way contradict Herodotus?
1: It makes the Athenians seem more organized than they were in Herodotus. But Herodotus is giving us a more of a heroic view of the, of the Athenians.
0: Not to be outdone by Homer. Uh, yes. Exactly. Thank you so much, Professor Strauss. That was was uh, <laughs> a real honor uh, to oh, to have you on welcome. the show today. And I would strongly endorse any of my listeners who want to cross your body of work to to do so. And if they choose to, where can they find you?
1: Well, they can find me on the internet at, at fairly simple barrystrauss.com. Uh, I have a website there. I've got a blog. I've got podcast. Uh, my podcast is called Antiquitas: Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World, and you can um, you can find that on uh, Apple and Spotify and all the uh, all the Google Play and all the usual places. So, um, and and of course, I've got my books, which are all available on. Amazon and all um, the usual outlets.
0: <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> and you. yeah, for, for more information on this one, the Battle of Salamis, the naval encounter that saved Greece and the Western civilization. Thank you so much, Mr. Strauss. You have a fantastic day. You too. Thank You're you. Welcome. welcome. Thanks to you all for taking the time to listen to this interview. It's such an amazing opportunity to be able to sit down with Barry and for that matter, all of the guests I have on this show. Stay tuned. Because next time, it's the Battle of Plataea with our old friend, Professor Paul Barthunius. Until then, take good care and speak soon. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can go to findmeacoffee.com forward slash Spartan History or haylpal.me slash Spartan History. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore History and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your prods from and leave a review. See you next time.